Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, it's Alistair here. Uh, Rory's had to run to a lunch. Uh, and we've just spent quite a long time in the studio here in London with the former cabinet minister, Sajid Javid. And it was really, really, really interesting. And the reason Rory's had to run and Sajid Javid has had to run is because we went way over our allotted time. You're going to hear the first part, which is very, very interesting. But we've actually decided to split it into two parts simply because we covered so much ground. We don't want to cut anything out. So we're going to put it out in two parts. First part you'll hear now. The second part will be in the main feed at the end of the week. But if you enjoy part one so much that you can't wait until Friday, you can become a member of Trip Plus. And you do that by going to therestispolitics.com. You'll get all sorts of other benefits if you do that. But the immediate benefit is you'll be able to listen to the second part of our interview with Sajid Javid. If you want to hear the first part, here you go. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Leading with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. And today we have with us Sajid Javid, who is one of the most, I suppose, senior and experienced members of parliament in the Conservative Party at the moment. I mean, he's been a cabinet minister in an enormous range of different departments. He was Chancellor of the Exchequer. He oversaw the business department. He did culture. He was the Home Secretary, et cetera, et cetera. So a really, really good way at getting under the the bonnet of um, real government, real administration. He became a minister very early on. We joined parliament together in 2010, but he was a minister by 2012. So he's been really up there on the front bench for, for over a decade. He ran for the leadership, actually against me and against Boris Johnson. And then he he ran the previous time too. And was a you know major contender in the leadership. Was um, I remember when we were uh, in Parliament, he was regularly 
one of the great stars of the Conservative Party and people talking about him as Britain's Obama. And that's partly because Sajid came in at a time, we'll talk about this a bit, where actually the Conservative Party had been very, very white. He was the first Muslim to hold one of the great offices of state in Britain. Conservative Party's changed a lot since then, so that's something maybe to, to talk about. But he's also got an extraordinary personal story, and he's about to leave politics. So this is a chance to, to get Sajid unbound, no longer worrying about exactly what position he's going to get next or where he's going, but to give us a sort of honest view on what it felt like to be a politician. Over to Alistair. So can we start right at the beginning with your, your childhood? You were born in Rochdale. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yes, I was born in Rochdale. But, but 1969. Grew up, but grew up mainly in Bristol. Yeah, I was uh, by the age of sort of three or four, left uh, with my parents and uh, moved to Bristol. And just give us a, a, a taste of your of your childhood in terms of, as Rory said, father from a pretty poor background. When he left Pakistan, got a you know okay job here, but you weren't exactly rolling in it in the way that eventually you were. So tell well, us about, well, <laughs> just tell us about childhood. And one thing I particularly yeah. want to ask you about is whether. Whether as a child of Pakistani heritage growing up in, particularly in Bristol, when you presumably got memories of that, whether you did suffer much racism and how that felt. Yeah. So as as Rory just said, so my actually my parents were both from very poor sort of backgrounds for, for villages in Pakistan. My dad came over first before my mum, and uh, his first job actually was on the cotton mills in Watchdale. And then he wanted to get a job on you know, that was sort of more regular, paid more relatively, and uh, applied to you join the what I think was the Greater Manchester Bus Company. Became a conductor. But you asked about racism. I just give you an example that he then passed on to me and my brothers was that. When he, uh, so he was a conductor, he wanted to become a driver. At that point, uh, there were hardly any other drivers in, in Manchester that were not white. And there was no legal reason, but the union blocked it. Uh, the union had rules, had a color bar policy. And uh, he told formal me this story. Informal. Informal. And, but they had, uh, he told me that there were posters and so it was informal, but they had posts saying no, you know, no uh, colored people would, you know, to drive buses. And he went along to, what was the recruitment office already as a conductor and he queued up queued up got to the end and there's a lady there who says i like an application form for uh to be a driver and she said you can't he said why not and he said because can't you read the sign and he said i know the law i know i can do this and she grabbed the paper chucked it on the floor he had to pick it up from the floor and he it took him two years to become a a bus driver and eventually became one of the first non-white bus drivers in, in manchester and so my parents faced racism as a child. I, I can remember so many instances of racism. I can remember in Rochdale, even though I left so young, I remember you know walking in the streets as a child with my mum you know, being shouted at, normally packy and mm. sometimes other even worse stuff. Uh, and in Bristol, uh, yeah, there were many, many instances. I mean, uh, by then my parents, uh, they wanted to have a business. My father, first he did market stalls. My mum used to sew the clothes for the stalls. And then he eventually sort of graduated a shop. He wanted a shop. We lived above the family shop. But I can't tell you the number of times that uh, we woke up one morning and there's graffiti on the windows of the shop, you know, packy bastards, packies out. And I'd feel so sorry for my parents. My mum would spend hours cleaning this graffiti while my dad would be trying to sell things in the shop. I absolutely get why you have a kind of visceral reaction to that kind of thing. But I just wondered on the union thing whether, because you've got quite a reputation as being a Thatcherite, certainly historically. Does that explain maybe why you have a, a, a take on the trade unions that is, I, you know, coming from where I am, is, is sometimes has felt a little bit extreme? Um, 
No, I don't. I don't think so. I, w- I think it's a great question in that would that had an impact you know, on my thinking about unions. Um, look, I'm not anti-union. I never have been. I, I, I think unions play an important role. You know, obviously for organised labour. But I would say that they have also, in the history of Britain, mm. done many wrong things. And you know, well, uh, being unaccepting of, of people that don't happen to be white was clearly wrong. There mm. are many union members, unions that organised to support people like Enoch Powell and others when he said what he said. And mm. so you had the sort of right and the left coming together. Mm. Um, Such one of the things I remember when we came into Parliament together, is early conversations where you very, very politely and courteously got me up to your tiny little office in Parliament to talk about foreign policy and Afghanistan. And But one of the things that made me wonder is how much of your Pakistani or Punjabi heritage you kept. Because on the one hand, I think you talk about the fact your mother didn't speak very good English, so you were having to translate for her when yeah. she went to doctor's appointments. But did you ever go back to Pakistan? Did you ever see the villages they came from? How did that identity sit with you? Uh, yes. I'm, I'm very proud of that heritage, that that, that identity. In fact, in fact, Punjabi was the, my mother tongue. I remember arriving at school at a very young age, not being able to speak English. And uh, and and at the time, I wouldn't have realized it. But today, I'm, I'm very proud of that, that I can you know, speak the language. And, and it meant when I did go to Pakistan, First as a child, but obviously that was my parents' choice. But more importantly, when I chose to go as an adult, I've taken my children to Pakistan. I've taken them to villages of my parents. In fact, just over a year ago, uh, my, my father is sadly no longer with us, but uh, one of his dying wishes to me and my brothers was that, please, if you ever can, take your children to my hometown, my village where he was born, which was on the Indian side of Punjab, south of Amritsar, a town mm. near um, Jalandhar, and which is now Indian Punjab. And he was part of that partition. And that obviously affected him a lot. And uh, he almost died as a youngster moving from um, just outside Amritsar to Lahore. And, and, and I did that just over a year ago. I took all my children, my, my family, my wife, to his birthplace, the house that he was born in, the school that he went to in India. And if you ask my children today, if they were here, and they've been very lucky, they've traveled a lot, they've had lots of nice holidays, been to very interesting places. If you ask all four of them today, what's the, the best sort of trip outside the UK you ever had that's impacted you the most, they would all say the visit to their dadu's birthplace. Mm. Before we move on from this, I, Sadiq Khan, uh, Humza Yusuf, Anasawa. I mean, th- there is a, a group across different parties, SNP, yeah. Conservative, Labour, of people who come from the Punjab, right? The Pakistani Punjab, most of them. Do you feel anything in common or is that sort of, when you meet them, is, is there anything there yes. that connects yes, people? Yes, I, I do. And, and the, the, all three of the people that you mentioned, right. obviously all in different political yeah. parties, different political dr- traditions. Uh, I, I know them all. I would consider them all friends. I think they would say that. I've got to know them through politics, uh, actually. Uh, and there is an affinity. There is, a, there is a, a link. I mean, we can obviously have our different politics and, and you know, the way we might vote, the things that we might say in, in, in Parliament and elsewhere. But there, there is a link. And I've worked with actually with, with uh, Sadiq Khan when I've been in ministerial positions and we worked incredibly well, became friends uh, with Hamza Youssef when I was the health secretary of the UK. He was the health minister in the Scottish government. We worked very closely together. Uh, Anas, I also know his father, knew his father, who actually went on to be governor of Punjab. And uh, so, uh, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I feel proud of uh, that in the UK today that you have, first of all, many more uh, 
people in politics uh, that are not white, that are from various backgrounds, be it black or Asian. But I guess in particular, uh, to see more people of Pakistani heritage coming through. Um, I was going to come to this later, but given that Sadiq's name has yeah. come up, it seems maybe I've decided now you were one of the first people to come out and criticise Lee Anderson for what he said mm. about Sadiq Khan, where he essentially said he was run by Islamists as opposed to you know run yeah. by Londoners. And I think a lot of people listening to this will hear you say, as a politician that they know well through having been cabinet minister mm. and so forth, but you're sitting there saying that you're friends with people of other parties. Is that something that you think the politicians don't say enough when they are actually on the front line in the big jobs where they're attacking each other the whole time? Because I think that's, I, I don't know what you thought there, right? I, I just thought, I think people find that, oh, God, he just, first thing he said virtually is about his opponents, that they become friends. Well, there, there, are, there are a lot of friendships, uh, let's say, across the aisle yeah. in, in, in politics. And sometimes I find that some of the, those are probably more trustworthy, <laughs> you know, real friendships than with people on your own side. Mm. And certainly during my time in, in Parliament, I can say there, I, I, I generally feel I have friends on, on the other side, as it were, and, uh, and, and respect in the sense that, you know, I might be standing there as a minister at the dispatch box and someone on the Labour side, let's say, gets up and says, that's all nonsense, don't agree with it. But they're doing their job. If that's, first of all, if that's what they really believe, then fine, fair, fair enough. That's why they're in Parliament, to express their opinions. They might not even really believe it. Their whips might have told them to do it, but they, they've got a job to do, right? I've got a job to do. But I can think of so many times where uh, I've worked with, especially as a minister, with uh, MPs, particularly, well, I was going to say particularly Labour, but I think of DUP MPs, Liberal Democrat MPs, on issues that, that really matter. Do you think Lee Anderson believes what he said? Do you think he believes that? that he, does he believe that Sadiq Khan is run by Islamists and I, he's lost control oh, of the streets of London? Hard to say whether he really believes. I like to think not. Could he really believe it? Sadly, he may. He didn't apologize, right? He hasn't apologized. I mean, let's let's be clear. What he said was racist. It was anti-Muslim hatred in a, in a very sort of blatant and, and, and the, one of the vilest forms. It was completely unacceptable. Wasn't I know lots of ministers out there saying now it's wrong. Of course, it was wrong, but it was much more than just like. Why wrong. are none of the current ministers saying what you've just said? And would you have said I, that when you were the Home Secretary? Yes. Yes. But why are none of them yes. saying that? They've all been told, yeah. say it's wrong, say it's unacceptable. I, say, I said similar when I was Home Secretary about others. I said similar about President Trump when he made some comments as Home Secretary. Just sort of to bring the listeners in who are not professional politicians, I think Alice is trying to get into professional politics. It is a kind of bizarre, right? We keep It's all over social media at the moment. Nick Ferrari will say to a minister, so you said it's wrong, why is it wrong? And then the minister will say, it's wrong. Wrong because it's wrong. He'll be like, why Why is it wrong? And he'll be like, it's wrong. And and they'll repeat like seven yeah. times the same phrase. Yeah. Can you just, now that you're leaving politics, it, take the veil back and explain to the public, why, why does ministers say the same line seven times? Well, obviously this isn't a policy area as such, but there will be, I mean, both of you will be familiar with this, maybe particularly Alistair, there will be lines to take. Right. And the expectation better crafted than the ones they've had uh, for this. And the expectation would be you would take those, right? They and, might be and, better and, and crafted, and so, right? And so, give you more a bit more wiggle room, <laughs> let's say. But somebody sure can written, think of many examples where he had to you know, you yeah. know, have, have a few words with someone when they didn't take the line, even though the line was pretty dumb. So right? so so to explain, somebody in the centre has decided yeah. that ministers should be saying it's wrong and not say anything else. Yeah. And it's been written down on a sheet yeah. of paper. The guy's yeah. gone into the radio yeah. studio with it written down. And 
I guess, and and also what happens off is before they just before they go into the studio, maybe that morning if they're doing what's yeah. called the morning round, yeah. they'll have a chat with some yeah. someone at number yeah. ten or yeah. CCHQ, the, the sort of headquarters, and they'll say, oh, by the way, you will get asked this, and all you can say is wrong. Do not cross the line. Do not cross the line. <laughs> and and but, then they'll feel they won't get promoted if they cross the line. They'll be well, in trouble. And they, some of them, are, yeah, some of them will be worried about promotions. Yeah, some of them are just not good ministers and and just weak. Right, that's the reality. Is that I. I mean, were there things that I said as a minister that I didn't really want to put it like that? They wouldn't be my words. I was taking that. Of course there were, right? Of course there were. But there were also plenty of times where mm-hmm. I just thought, you know what? This is just too important. You've got to say And it. you just got to say what it is. Mm. And whatever the consequences, damn the consequences, right? And sometimes the consequence might not quite be what you think. You know, for example, you remind me of something. You know, when I was the... Uh, the local government community secretary, the the Windrush scandal mm-hmm. had started. It was it was awful. I mean, I think the I was reading about it, hearing about it, learning a bit more in government. Obviously, I wasn't in the Home Office, but everything I was hearing about it internally, reading externally, thanks to the excellent work of Amelia Gentleman and others and stuff. I thought this is just terrific. This is like these people are British, and I just cannot understand how how this could have happened, right? And and I remember being interviewed about it. As you know, obviously, as a cabinet minister, it was the hottest topic. It had very clear lines. You must not admit it's a crisis. You must not say it's a scandal. You must defend the Home Office. I remember doing an interview, and uh, and I said, "Look, this is awful. This is a it's it's a massive injustice." And then I said, "This could have been my parents. Like, this could have been my parents. Right? I just cannot understand it." I got a call that afternoon from uh, number ten. I think I won't yeah. say who it was, but someone very senior saying. You, you, why did you say that? You've caused so much trouble. Was, this was, is... was the name Nick or Fiona? Uh, no, actually, uh, they had gone by then. <laughs> okay. Thankfully, they had gone. Right? <laughs> and this, I'll tell you, it was like on a, something like the Saturday, I get this call saying, you must, you know, the Prime Minister sub said she wants to see you first thing. This is unacceptable. And, you and, cannot I'm sorry, understand. I'm going to interrupt just to yeah. explain to the audience why that would be. It's because... The government's really worried. They're trying to hold the line together. And they're worried that if you say this, it's yeah. going to create newspaper headlines that the journalists will try to use against yeah. the Home Secretary. Yeah. 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 And then, yeah. I think almost literally, I'm pretty sure the following day, I think the Sunday, Amber Rudd resigns. And you got Amber Rudd job. resigns, right? And Monday morning, <laughs> you I get a call. phone call. I do get that phone call from the Prime Minister <laughs> about Windrush, really. But it wasn't to bollock me. It's it was to, to say... Job. Do you want to? Be, I would really love you to become the Home Secretary, right? You see, you, what you've just said there reminds me. We used to have John Reid, Jack Cunningham, Margaret Beckett, Donald Dewar. We had several cabinet ministers who you could phone up and say, "This is the line, okay? This is the line to take." But then they would go out and they would speak like human beings. They wouldn't say something contrary to government line. So what you did there was actually you didn't go across. In saying this could have been your parents, you weren't saying this is the government's fault necessarily. So that's the difference. And that's when you talked earlier about some ministers aren't very good. That's what drives me mad about most of today's ministers. They sound like robots reading a script. Too many of them sound like robots. They sometimes they, everyone knows, everyone's listening and think, come on, you just know you should be better than this, right? And uh, and it's good, obviously, that they're saying it's wrong, which is better than not saying it's wrong, I guess. But it's not going far enough because, mm. you know, what Lee Anderson said is just totally unacceptable in politics. Like he shouldn't be in the, as a result, you know, especially if he just wasn't willing to issue any kind of sincere apology. And mm. since then, obviously, he's doubled down, which makes me think 
back to Rory's question, he, maybe he just didn't mean this. He really actually meant this, which is even worse in some ways. He could, you know, people do misspeak sometimes. It gets taken out of context. Um, you know, if isn't, he, isn't he doing it? And aren't the government not sort of going overboard and saying the sort of things that you've just said? Because they think there is a part of the electorate that can't have their own prejudices challenged. And that's dangerous. So actually, you've got a situation where senior politicians are saying, we're not going to call out racism because there will be people there who will feel we're talking about them because that's what they think. No, I think clearly there's a reason why the, the lines to people are, you know, don't go, you know, say this much, but don't go any further. Uh, but it is clear, I think, that any sensible, reasonable person that if you take this instance, your anti-Muslim hatred is as unacceptable as anti-Semitism. Right. There's no they're both completely unacceptable. This is, you know, disliking someone or at worst, you know, hurting them, discriminating them, you know, calling for th bad things to be done to them just because of the faith they've chosen to follow. And and I saw both as community secretary, as home secretary, and now it's even worse for, for both of those communities. Both mm -hmm. of those are suffering unacceptable levels of racism because of uh, the, you know, activities that are you know, happening thousands of miles away where the, the people who want to protest against that or make an issue, they can't just find a, a sensible civil way to do that. And they attack people from different communities. Okay, uh, let's just take a quick break. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. One of the things I was always interested in with you is that in many ways you lived a very cosmopolitan life. As you said, you traveled as a child, you worked in Singapore, you worked for these big international organizations. But I noticed when you came to Parliament, you didn't spend a great deal of time talking about foreign policy. So even though you, you'd lived internationally, you, you spoke Punjabi, you had all that background, why was it you were not leaning in more to you know, the war in Afghanistan or what was happening in Iraq or 
Kashmir or Israel-Palestine. Am I right that, that to some extent you, you focus more on domestic policy? Um, not completely, because I've had a, a huge long-running interest in, in foreign policy, foreign issues, long before I was a, in politics. You, know, you talked about my banking career. My banking career was, most of it was in a field called emerging markets, which were you know, basically you're developing economies around the world. And one of the things I liked about that particular work for the 20 years I did it was that it took me to some very interesting parts of the world and uh, I was as interested in the politics of those countries as the economics. The answer to your question though, but it, you are, it is right, the, the point, the final point you make about not talking too much about these issues in parliament, I think the short answer is really that um, I became a minister very early and and from that, from 2012, I was elected in 2010, as you know, as a minister, uh, actually a PPS within nine months, a, a minister in the treasury by 2012 and there for almost a decade as a, in various ministry positions. So I, I tend to stick to my brief because there's always, a re if I start talking about, you know, yeah. obviously when it's foreign policy interests, you have the foreign office, the international development office. So privately I would have discussions with ministers, including, I think, Rory, with you when you were hmm. in, in those portfolios. In fact, you remind me of something that, you know, there's no reason anyone knows that, but when I was George Osborne's PPS and just before I became a, a treasury minister, the economic secretary, a week before the reshuffle, George said to me, look, we're going to have a reshuffle next week. Don't tell anyone. And uh, I think the prime minister is really minded to give you a ministerial job. What would be your dream job? And I said, the foreign office. And then a week later, I'm to the treasury as the economic secretary. I love that job. It, I guess it suited my sort of immediate skill set more. But actually, the job I wanted was also on, on foreign policy, because one thing that you were quite well known for, you very strongly pro-Israel. You chaired Conservative Friends of Israel for quite a long time. I, I haven't chaired it, no, but I, I am. Uh, you know, Israel is a country that I, I have, have been very yeah. supportive of, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a country that you know is, is for the, all the right reasons an ally of the UK. Yeah, and so with what's going on now, this sort of links up with the the Lee Anderson stuff. And as you said, yeah. you've got anti-Semitism, you've got Islamophobia. I noticed that you you were using that phrase anti-Muslim hatred. Yeah. Is that what you don't? It, what is this row in the Conservative Party about and, and, not and, wanting and, and to that, use that the word? That surprises me a bit because one of my great memories when we mm. were at that uh, that BBC leadership debate together. Yeah, we were all on the stage against Boris Johnson. One of the yeah. things you did at the end of the debate is you challenged us all to sign up yeah. to an investigation into what you yeah. then called Islamophobia. If I hadn't done that, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. I mean, it might happen if you yeah. become prime minister yeah, 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 or I become yeah, yeah, prime yeah, yeah, minister, but yeah. I was yeah. a bit worried it might not happen with Boris Johnson, so that's why I did it. Yeah. And but in those days you used the phrase Islamophobia, and now you tend to use anti-Muslim. Well, actually, I, I I think that particular debate I used the phrase only because I think the question was phrased in that right. way, and I didn't, and we didn't have much time. I didn't want right. to sort of get into a, a, a sort of argument about definitions. But uh, I do actually, I, I do think I've looked at this a lot. I looked at it a lot as both community secretary and home secretary. And uh, I think the, the correct term is anti-Muslim hatred. And the reason is, is that the definition of Islamophobia, particularly the definition that was, um, uh, I think, put together by the APPG, mm -hmm. a, a parliamentary party group. group yeah. and I met the leaders of that group at the time. It was, you know, I remember meeting Saida Varsi, Anna Subri, there were others. And we had some you know, very good meetings, but I told them at the time, and, I, you know, and it was a decision of mine in the Home Office at the time, not to use that term because uh, it was too broad, because it included uh, saying to people, you can't criticize a faith. It was like a blasphemy type law, right? And and in this country, 
you know, for all the right reasons, we have freedom of expression, freedom of expression of religion, and just as we shouldn't have a blasphemy law on, on Christianity, on Judaism, any other religion, you know, the, the, all religions should be treated the same. But what was very clear and has always been clear to me is that because someone chooses to follow a particular religion, that the, the, there's no reason that uh, anyone can have uh, to discriminate against them, to abuse them in any way. And that's why I think anti-Muslim hatred is the right term. So would you say that your strength of feeling about the issue, and in particular what Lee Anderson and Suella Braverman yeah. said at the week last weekend, that you feel just as strongly as Saeed Avasi does about what he did, why it's so bad, it's just that there's an argument about what word to call it. I think on the issue of, of, of Lee Anderson, I think that's probably uh, correct. I mean, Saeed Avasi feels strongly on many issues, so I, can, I couldn't speak for her. Uh, no, but on, really, this, yeah. on this issue. On, on, the, on, the, Lee well, Anderson, she, she on the Lee Anderson point, she's been really clear, and, uh, and, uh, and I think I've been very clear, so I think we would be in agreement on that. But there's one other point I just want to make on the Islamophobia versus anti-Muslim hatred in terms of definitions, is that as Home Secretary, I also received advice from the police, you know, that fighting counter-terrorism, you know, fighting terrorism you know, day in, day out, and other services. And the police, and this is public, it was, it was published eventually, uh, the, the National Police Chiefs Council, which represents mm -hmm. all the sort of uh, chief constables, they had given me very strong advice in 2019 that the definition of Islamophobia that the government is being asked to accept is far too broad and actually works against the interests of Muslims. It will feed extremism. And that is something as Home Secretary, of course, you're going to take seriously. On, on language, have there ever been times, I mean, here you are today being very calm and moderate and mature discussion with the three of us have there ever been times in your your career where you feel you have gone over the top with some of the things you said i'm thinking about you call momentum i'm, I'm no fan of momentum mm. but you call them neo-fascist you there was a time where you were kind of suggesting that jeremy corbyn was a bit of a holocaust denier is that back to the point about when you're in the heat of the debate as a frontline politician that sometimes you can go over the top do you think that was going over the top well I mean, sometimes, look, first of all, can you go over the top? Sometimes, yes, you can, right? You're a human, you're, you're at the heat of the moment. Can you say something that you think on reflection is the wrong way to put it? And would you have, uh, on those occasions, would you have thought that? On those, I mean, you, you mentioned Jeremy Corbyn. I think Jeremy Corbyn had, he had an issue with, with Jewish people. Right, he had an issue, and and I wasn't as well documented, and uh, the number of people on his, in his own party that believed he had a problem with, with Jewish people. And uh, and I, when I made some comments about him, he actually threatened to sue me. And I said, I'd see you in court. And uh, and by the way, if I see you in court, you're going to take the stand and you're going to get questioned on your relationship with uh, anti-Semitism. And he backed off. And so... See you in court yeah. sounds quite aggressive. <laughs> well, he, he's the one who... He, yeah. he hired a lawyer. I mean, we, and we, I don't know who was funding all this stuff from him, but he hired a lawyer and I suddenly received this letter from him. But but my your question was, uh, you know, on that particular point, I don't... Not that, but the, but I'm not saying there won't be others. I mean, yeah, I can't yeah. think right now, but they're, they're, I'm sure I can think of instances where I thought I went too far. So can I bring you back to your time as a government minister in administration? One of the loveliest things I remember when I uh, made it into the cabinet is you gave me a telephone call. Mm. And you said to me, Rory, I wanted to get you on the phone because you're taking over. First time, you're not junior minister anymore, you're cabinet minister. These are my bits of mm. advice. Uh, mm. for taking over a department. Will you um, share, share with the audience a little bit, if you can remember, what your general <laughs> advice is on taking over a department? Well, I've done that quite a bit in the, uh, that um, colleagues have often uh, were asked, and even recently, where they've become a, the head of a department for the first time. 
And yeah, uh, so I, I think the sort of top things in my head would be having run six of these uh, six departments is that that no matter how much you think you're going to do and get done and things, it's not going to quite work out like that because um, uh, you're not totally in charge, right? First of all, obviously you've got a boss that's a cabinet in a department. As you'll remember, Rory and Alistair, you will know the you know you don't typically pick your junior ministers. The only people you end up picking are your spads, your special advisors. Everyone else is already there. The civil servants are obviously permanent and they're going to be there a lot longer than you will ever be. So one of the first pieces of advice. Uh, would be to just find like two or three things, maybe even just two that really, really matter to you, that really matter where you think you're going to make a difference and focus on those rather than trying to have like 10 things, right? Because you're just not going to achieve it. Second thing is to make sure you read everything that's put in front of you, the, all the basically the paper, what you actually do it yourself and that you challenge and your uh, way you want to. Well, he obviously didn't phone Boris forward, Johnson right? when he got a job then. Well, <laughs> he didn't, yeah, he's never asked me for any advice like that. Um, and, and so, and that takes a lot of time, right? There's a, you know, some of the departments that I've been in, mm. Home Secretary, obviously health and the pandemic and things, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that can, you can spend, you spend a lot of time at night just going through stuff, but you have to do it because there's no, no one can read it for you. They can mm. give you some reason stuff, but you have to really go through this yourself. Um, and another piece of advice, maybe a bit more unusual is, was that, um, that, that be nice to all MPs, right? Be civil to all MPs, not just your own side, right? All MPs. So we're, we're, I obviously as a Secretary of State, MPs, as they should, will come to you with issues, either a policy issue or quite often a constituency issue. Those really matter to MPs as, as my constituency issues have always mattered to me. But go out of your way to really help them out. And, right? and, and, and it doesn't matter if they're a Labour MP, a Liberal Democrat MP or Conservative, just treat them all the same um, because A, it's the right thing to do, first thing, because it's a constituency issue especially. But B, you're going to need those MPs one day and, and they will remember that you really went out of your way. We had an interesting case of this, didn't we, with MPs coming to Ed Davey when he was cabinet minister about the post office. I think yeah. it was Dominic Grieve, yeah. Oliver Letwin. And I was very surprised by that as a former minister, that mm. if two of my colleagues had come to me, and they're pretty senior mm. colleagues, weren't they? Right? Mm. Those were kind of big, big cheeses in the party coming to say, we have a really big problem with the post mm. office. And he obviously decided to slightly say, well, you know, I'm getting different advice from my civil servants. The department's telling me there's not a big deal here. Can you sort of think about how, why that might happen? Why a minister might make that mistake? Look, I don't know the specifics of that, of course, but ministers, absolutely, I can think of some instances where you will you will get advice and uh, it's wrong, not correct, and not, uh, and I'm not saying it's, it's deliberate, right? Someone's sitting there trying to manipulate the minister necessarily, but you know, why might that happen? There can be many reasons, but if you think of responsibility of government and how broad it is, you mentioned the post office. It's a, it's a government-owned company. It's got its own independent board. And then it reports into another government, Quango, or certainly did at the time, I think, called UKGI, which then reports into a couple of different departments, which then reports into two different ministers. If you just work your way through that chain, you can see how, especially with all the independence involved, you know, there's a corporate body, there's a separate body, uh, then eventually it gets to civil service. You can see how things can be lost in that, including like super important things. You, you mentioned your time as PPS to George Osborne. Yeah. One of the things that Roy and I argue about a lot on this podcast is the impact of austerity and whether it 
helped or harmed and whether it's partly responsible for the pretty yeah. dire state that the country's in, in at the moment. And I just wanted to tie that to your experience in banking and whether you agree with me or disagree with me that one of the reasons why populism was born and one of the reasons why it's become so powerful, not just in the UK, but in different parts of the world, is that the sense of the global financial crisis was that, quotes, shorthand, the people who caused it got away with it mm. and we, the public, are paying a price. And that's what's fueled a lot of inequality. It's what's fueled a lot of anger with politicians and with bankers. You know that bankers mm. are not the most popular people in the world. So first of all, your assessment on austerity, and secondly, what your reflections are about what the modern banker is and does, and whether that has helped to fuel populism and inequality. Well, first, you mentioned the global financial crisis, so sort of 2007, 2008, and then obviously it had a big impact on the election result in 2010. Yeah. Clearly, the, 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 the banking system you know, screwed up. Lots of reasons why it screwed up, but one of the reasons, both in the UK and US and others was uh, the, the poor regulation. Mm -hmm. And that was a decision by politicians, right? So as you, you will remember, the, the entire regulatory framework of, of banking in the UK was changed by you know, the then Labour government, and they made a big song and dance about it. But you know, it's very clear how that then led to some of the problems. Now, you asked me about austerity. When, when, we, when the government, the coalition government came in, in 2010, you know, when I would get asked about austerity, obviously, especially then, it was very topical. I would say it's about government living within its means. And so I think you and I would probably disagree on this in that you know, I think the government, in terms of reining in public spending, trying to bring what was then a record budget deficit of more than 10% of GDP, trying to bring that down and doing so over a number of years, I think the government had no choice because if, it, if, it, if, it, if the alternative was to keep spending money that you haven't got, then I was worried at the time, and, I, and even looking back, I think it was right to worry that how the financial markets might react to that. Because you right remember there were other countries that didn't rein its spending in in time, like Ireland, like Greece, like uh, Portugal, and they had all had to have bailouts. But, but when you reflect on where we are now, the state of the economy now, the levels yeah. of debt and borrowing and yeah. taxation now, yeah. you don't think there's a possibility. I know we've had Brexit, we've had COVID, and all these other things. There isn't a possibility that actually some of the foundations for this mess were actually laid during that period. No, I think actually things would be worse if we didn't have the controlled public spending that we had during the coalition years. And I'll give you an example of that. During 2010, 2015, the government was, it didn't eliminate the deficit. The original goal was to eliminate it. Mm. It managed to half the deficit, which incidentally was the plan that Alistair Alice Darling, Darling had. had yeah. right? So yeah. they basically had implemented Alistair Darling's plan by the 2015 election. And then spending more or less was, you know, by whether it's the IMF, World Bank, they considered the UK had it under control. Then the pandemic comes along. And the government spent, I think, an additional 400 billion that it wasn't planning to spend in, in total mm. with all the support, the health work and all of that. That wouldn't have been, it's hard to think how that would have been possible if austerity, as you call it, or bringing spending under control hadn't happened. And just before we get back to Rory, what's your assessment of Brexit eight years on from the referendum? Well, look, I didn't support Brexit. My view hasn't changed. And, uh, and I think that clearly, obviously, we've had Brexit. But you know, the the delivery of Brexit, if we call it that, not just because of the pandemic, and obviously that happened around the same time as we were leaving, then the war in Europe and things, there's lots of other things going on, I think hasn't so far, hasn't lived up to 
what I think people who voted for Brexit, what they felt they were promised. That said, where where do we end up as a country between sort of now and next five or 10 years as a result of Brexit? I think it's too early to tell. Um, so structurally, one of the problems, um, we, we were both on the Remain side during the Brexit thing. Mm. And a lot of the Brexiteers were arguing then that it was going to be terrific because you'd leave Europe, which was a relatively slow growing economy, and you'd be able to create terrific trade deals with faster growing economies, China, India, the US. But two things have changed since then. One is that the international security situation has changed. So the idea of betting heavily on China and integrating heavily with the Chinese economy doesn't look as smart now as it might have looked in 2016. Mm. And the second thing that's changed is that the world has actually become more protectionist. The US in particular is much less interested in free trade deals than it was in the past. And all over the world, tariff barriers are going up. So that in a way, the problem for you know the kind of I suppose the the free trade right of the Tory party that supported Brexit is that the world's changed since 2016. They they weren't able to launch themselves into this wonderful world of free trade because other countries are much less interested. They're becoming more isolationist, more protectionist, which of course makes me think that we should be considering very, very strongly looking at something like rejoining the customs union, even if we weren't thinking about joining the EU again, because the world's changed since 2016. Well, it has, um, for the reasons you've said, Rory, it has become harder to do trade deals. I mean, there have been some you know, successes. The the one with Asia, in particular, the CTTP, is is a you know particular. But you know, none of that replaces the the agreement that it had existed with the EU, not just because of no tariffs, but all the non-tariff barriers uh, as well. Uh, and and you're right about also the US and China and all that as well. And I actually, I felt even before, you know, whether it's because of COVID or changes in US leadership, I always felt it was always going to be hard for the UK to do sort of big trade deals that are going to be clearly in the UK interest with these other big economies outside the EU. Now, we are where we are. And I think there is a case uh, for having a you know, deeper trade agreement with the EU. The current trade agreement has to be renegotiated anyway. And so whoever wins the next election, uh, they should be looking to work with our EU partners to see especially how they can start removing some of those non-tariff barriers. So hopefully all of our listeners at home have enjoyed that. If you'd like to hear the second part right now, it's already available to members of The Rest is Politics Plus, and you can sign up at therestispolitics.com or you can subscribe through Apple Podcasts. If not, no worries, it'll be out on Friday. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. 
We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.